Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting The Motley Fool. LinkedIn Jobs matches people to your role based on more of who they really are, their skills, interests, and even how open they are to new opportunities. For $50 off your first job post, go to linkedin.com slash fool. That's linkedin.com slash fool. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Industry Focus, a podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your host, Vincent Chen. It's Tuesday, November 13th. Joining me on the show today via Skype is senior Motley Fool contributor, Asa Sharma. Hey, Asa, how's it going? Good, man. How are you? I am doing pretty well. Enjoyed spending some time with you over the weekend. Um, It's definitely nice to get down to North Carolina, catch up with some friends, catch up with you. That was really nice. Yeah, we had an awesome time. I really enjoyed being able to hang out with you and your lovely wife, Gina, um, also with my wife, Dill, and a couple of your friends. And we had some very delicious Mexican food. Yeah, those tacos Uh, were good. They, yeah, I, I, I nibbled a little bit on Dills. I, I don't know why I walked into one of the few really authentic joints in Raleigh and ordered the burrito. A long story we don't have time for today, but <laughs> to cut it short, I had a great time seeing you. It was really fun. Listeners, if you, if you have a chance to catch dinner with Vincent Shen, you should never refuse. <laughs> a, great, a great evening. <laughs> All right. So before we get into our main topic, we have to spend at least a few minutes talking about Amazon. Because last year in September, uh, I said you and I first discussed the news that Amazon would be opening a second headquarters, expanding outside of the current campus in Seattle, and showing just how much pull and influence that the company has uh, in this country. The past year has been pretty much a rat race among many major metropolitan areas, pitching Amazon essentially on why they would make a great site for what they're calling HQ2. Well, the official decision was actually announced this morning. There have been rumors floating for the past several weeks about uh, this decision being made, being finalized, but we're looking at a split for the new headquarters between Crystal City in Virginia and Long Island City in Queens in New York. So Crystal City or National Landing, which is what they're trying to rebrand it to, um, is not too far from Full HQ. I actually pass through that area every day during my commute on the Metro. I'm just curious, uh, you know, the news just came out this morning. We've talked about it a few times. Are you surprised at all, Asit, by these choices? I'm not surprised in the least. These are two great cities, great locations if you're a company with such a gargantuan reach. Uh, Both offer uh, much in terms of an educated workforce, proximity to really prime, not to make a pun there, really prime shipping points uh, for the East Coast. Uh, And also, I think the choice of Crystal City obviously has political implications for Amazon as it grows larger. It'll be closer to the politicians who are making rules which might regulate it. Uh, And being close to New York City, which is the nation's financial center, uh, doesn't hurt either. So these are great choices for Amazon. Uh, They will add much to the local economies. I am a little curious. Both of those points are congested already in terms of commuter traffic. Uh, And both have surrounding areas that they can build out uh, in terms of logistics. So I'm curious to see what will happen in the future. I live not too far from uh, Northern Virginia, so I I anticipate it'll be much more crowded uh, getting in. Yeah, I'll I'll say that you know this the whole HQ2 this whole process come I feel like it comes up at least a few times a month in conversation for people who live in this area especially now um, that there have been rumors that they're coming close uh, they were coming close to making this decision and you think about 25,000 new jobs um, lots of money potentially billions of dollars in investments it's a big deal but 
the reaction, it seems like this morning uh, around HQ and talking to some of my friends and family seems to be a mix depending on, for example, if you're a homeowner or not and how that might affect uh, home prices in the area. But a lot of people also seem to be grumbling about the idea of more traffic, higher housing prices. But uh, another big question that also remains Uh, and I know a lot of people are curious about, is basically the full extent of the incentives that Amazon will receive from the local and state governments in Virginia and New York. Uh, So in the press release, for example, the company mentions uh, over $550 million of incentives for the potential 25,000 jobs it's bringing to the Crystal City uh, region, the Virginia region. Um, Additional details will become public in the coming days and weeks, and they're certainly going to be an important part of the equation for the communities that will soon be homes of the new HQ2 campuses. All right, so now let's get into the rest of our discussion, and that's what role consumer and retail can play for investors in a weak market. Um, We bring this up now because yesterday, the S&P down NASDAQ, they each declined 2%, 3%. All three indices are down significantly from their highs reached earlier this year, and volatility has been kind of the name of the game for a few weeks now. Asset and I talked about what's driving some of this volatility two weeks ago, but that doesn't necessarily make it any easier to sift through all these headlines, uh, these predictions that you see that the next bear market is coming, it's on its way. So as this bear sentiment uh, sentiment grows, uh, we're seeing certain names in consumer and retail outperform. And specifically, we're talking about consumer staples and the value that they can have in your portfolio as a source of stability and diversification, especially when you're hoping to play defense without panicking and selling out of all your positions. Um, I remember Back in Econ 101, my professor, he discussed certain sectors of the economy, concepts like inelasticity of demand. Asa, can you break down consumer staples for us and the appeal that they can have in down markets? Absolutely. So, consumer staples are pretty much what they sound like. They are the staples that you buy every day um, that exist in your household. We're going to talk a little bit in uh, this show about Procter & Gamble, but they give you maybe the easiest way to think of consumer staples. They have everything from, uh, you know, Tide uh, to food products, packaged food products that they own and that consumers buy. So consumer staples, the things that you buy before the layer of your income that we call discretionary income. I'm going to just really briefly mention discretionary uh, consumer stocks as a group as well. We'll touch on that during this show. Discretionary income, is also just what it sounds like. It's the money that you can uh, afford to use for the things that are treating yourself in life, maybe going out to eat or buying stuff from Amazon.com. Amazon is thought of as a discretionary stock. So these are sort of the two poles of consumer stocks. I should say these are the traditional ways to think of consumer stocks. On this show, of course, we talked a few months ago in our future episode about how the line between tech and consumer stocks is really becoming vague. And some stocks, uh, which we now classify as consumer stocks, might as well be tech companies. But we're going back to bedrock definitions today. I'll flip it back to you, Vince, so we can dive into um, the the rest of of the the tickers that we have for folks today. Well, yeah, a big thing that I want to to just cover um, to start things off and to offer some perspective as to why this sector, this, these consumer staples, uh, these names, this part of the economy can be um, very powerful during times when things are uncertain, uh, people are more bearish in the market, uh, is the performance of certain 
um, I guess, proxies. So I said one that you turned me on to before the show, the Consumer Staples ETF. Uh, specifically, this one, the ticker is XLP. You look at it as a proxy for the, this part uh, or this subsector. And you only have to look at the past month to see how its trading has diverged from the broad market. So since uh, the big sell-off in mid-October, uh, XLP is up almost 9%, while the S&P 500 is flat over the same period. And that extends uh, that outperformance uh, also shows through year-to-date and in more recent months. Um, you shared a chart with me, said, How did those numbers pan out? Let's start with the year-to-date numbers, uh, and this is from Fidelity. You can also find this if you go to uh, the S&P website and look at their sector funds. Uh, but Fidelity's numbers show that year-to-date, the healthcare sector has largest gain. It's gained 11%, followed by consumer discretionary, um, which is up 8%. I'm rounding here. Um, information technology is next, and then utilities. Uh, so information technology up about 7%, utilities up 4%. But everyone who's followed the market understands that conditions have really deteriorated over the last three to six months. So I'm going to now read you a three-month view of market sector leaders. The first is consumer staples. That's up 6% in a three-month period. Utilities are up 3.5%. Healthcare is up only 2%. Real estate is up less than 1%. Every other sector from communication services to financials to information technology to energy, they're all negative uh, over the last three-month period. Yeah, and I'll also give you a more historical look. Uh, take 2008 um, and the lead-up to the financial crisis. You know, that was a year when S&P 500 shed just under 40%. Um, you know, a huge scare for uh, investors across the market. But the XLP, as an example during that time, took a hit of just 17% that year. It's not hard to see how having part of your portfolio invested in consumer staples during that time um, could have softened the blow from the rest of the market um, as things were selling off. So I took a look at the fact sheet for XLP and the top industries represented in it. Again, these are the things that arguably you know you can't go out go without. It's that's the the main theme for some of these industries think about uh, food and beverages, household products, uh, tobacco also traditionally included in this category as well. And among the top 10 holdings for XLP, you have companies like Procter & Gamble, which we mentioned, Coca-Cola, Walmart, Costco, Altria, among others. So these are supposed um, to be the companies that remain stable, even in uh, these weaker market or economic conditions, because, because people need what they sell regardless um, of those conditions. Next up, we'll look a little more closely um, at what these consumer staples uh, companies in this sector can offer, and then some of the stocks that fit into the category and how they're uh, personally or individually bucking the bearish market trends in 2018. Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting The Molly Fool and Industry Focus. The right hire can make a huge impact on your business. That's why it's so important to find the right person. But where do you find that individual? LinkedIn. Because LinkedIn is more than the world's largest professional network, it's also a better way to find great talent. LinkedIn Jobs matches people to your role based on more of who they really are. And with 70% of the U.S. workforce already signed up, a new hire is made every 10 seconds using LinkedIn. That's right. 22 million professionals are job hunting and applying to positions through LinkedIn every week and in every industry you can imagine. All you have to do is ask one of the hundreds of thousands of businesses who have posted to LinkedIn Jobs over the past year, and you'll quickly realize why those businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs 
40% higher than your run-of-the-mill job boards when it comes to delivering quality candidates. If not using LinkedIn, the world's largest professional network for your hiring needs, you could be missing out on that one candidate with the exact skills and experience that you want working for your business. Hurry to linkedin.com slash fool for $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash fool. Terms and conditions apply. All right, Asit. Um, so I know there were at least a few tickers uh, and other aspects of the this category, these consumer staples category that you want to highlight um, and how they've outperformed this year. So where do you want to start? I want to dive in with the largest holding of the XLP. Listeners, I'm going to pause for two seconds while you try to guess what is the largest holding. I think it already, I already gave it away earlier in the, the show. It's Procter & Gamble, which is 13% of this fund. I know there are some board members probably at Procter & Gamble who this week, these past few weeks are thinking, how do you like me now? <laughs> because this <laughs> yeah. was a an unloved stock. Uh, I'm going to give you the annual average return of Procter & Gamble since Going back to this period that Vince talked about, the beginning of the financial crisis, I uh, did a search for an anchor date of the January 1st of 2008. Um, the company has only returned about 7% a year in this great bull market versus the S&P's nearly 13% annual return. And that's because it's had very slow organic growth. Uh, it's had to compete with the smaller brands that have taken advantage of e-commerce um, and how cheap it is to build out a new brand and take it to market. It's had some other difficulties in its approach to brands, which we've talked about on this show, and, and listeners are familiar with just the plethora of products that it has has had in the past. It has reduced that product line. It's reduced its brand line. Um, still is looking for a turnaround. And of course, we've also recently talked about board member Nelson Peltz, who's an activist shareholder looking to uh, effect change at the company. The reason that Procter & Gamble, which was down almost 26% just a few months ago, is now even for the year and is one of the best performing stocks in the S&P 500 over that period, is that it's a stalwart flight to quality company. When you hear the talking heads on TV mention defensive stocks and these terms, flight to quality, they're really talking about these companies which grow revenues very slowly because the stable, more stable the cash flow, the less volatility there is in the earnings. So what becomes a black mark on a company when the market is rising and technology companies are grabbing everyone's attention? Those become virtues when folks are starting to run scared. And, and thinking about what's going to happen to my capital. I had it invested in some high-flying stocks, and I see they're down about 20 25% in just the last couple of weeks. How will I preserve that capital? This is why a stock like Procter & Gamble becomes so attractive. And I should mention that in addition to the really stable cash flows it's known for, it still throws off that widows and orphans dividend yield, which we've talked about on the show. I looked this morning, it's currently at 3%. That's not a bad yield if you have to park some of your money. The reason that uh, this stock in particular is starting to stand out on many lists is because of the relative underperformance over the last few years. So the thinking is, there's some upside here, especially if Peltz can initiate some of the change he wants. Maybe this could be more than a 7% return 
and it provides that defense in an uncertain market. What are your thoughts, Vince, about P&G? No, I think that's a great overview. And it's funny because you know we last talked about P&G in late September. And really, I don't think anything has changed fundamentally since then in terms of the story. You know, we know that uh, around the begin or the middle of the year, the stock got a boost thanks to um, the push from activist investor Nelson Peltz. But we're not at a point yet where the company has come out and uh, officially announced that they're adopting any of these uh, major changes that Pelt has has um, you know offered up as a way for the company to kind of return to the stronger growth and better you know portfolio of brands that it had. But stocks up over 17% in the past month. And I think you summed it up um, as somebody, even though the story hasn't changed, as somebody looking in from the outside, you know, you have a company that is looking to pay $7 billion in dividends and do $5 billion of share buybacks for fiscal 2019. That has to be looking pretty good right now, as do, uh, even though uh, they've been struggling relatively for the company in terms of market sh- growing their market share or maintaining their market share, there's still a company that has a portfolio of many well-known household leading brands. And uh, I think that really does sum up this idea of the flight to quality. Um, another ca- uh, company that I'd like to uh, move on to, and I can't help but chuckle a little bit about this one, it's McDonald's because the company has really roared back in recent years under the leadership of CEO Steve Easterbrook. And personally, I swear all of my friends will groan when McDonald's comes up uh, as just something they don't eat anymore. They complain it's unhealthy. But privately, like one-on-one, I'll talk to my friends and they'll admit to the occasional guilty pleasure kind of drive through for a Big Mac and French fries. And I feel the same way because given the success uh, that we've seen with things like all-day breakfast, um, a better value menu, uh, they've been investing in new technology like kiosk ordering, the refranchising efforts, I think the company has a lot of um, long-term irons in the fire that help it stand out even more in a weak market. And you just look at the most recent quarterly results. So U.S. comps were up 2.4%, while international markets grew 4%, 6%. Revenues down from that franchising effort that I mentioned, but the bottom line grew 17%. Franchise Because these franchising fees are far more stable, exactly what investors want uh, in this kind of consumer staple business. And the chain's renovating uh, 1,000 locations every quarter. Delivery is now available at 15,000 restaurants. You add to that the 2.5% dividend yield and a market beating 7% gain for the stock year to date. And it's like, okay, this really jumps out as an interesting option now for somebody who um, isn't looking to just completely clear out their portfolio, right? They, they're looking for something, play defense like we've talked about. What do you think? I think McDonald's is a surprising source of growth in the fast food industry surprising because it's so large. One would think that these smaller rivals would take the available market share. But you're right, Vince, since uh, CEO Steve Easterbrook took over, the company's made a lot of rapid change. It's aligned itself with a more uh, progressive eating out culture, which appeals to millennials. It's removed some harmful ingredients uh, from its list. And to point to the innovations that you mentioned. I'm especially interested in delivery because that's not just a U.S. story, but it's a global story. And McDonald's has uh, really ramped up its global sales. You mentioned, Vince, 4.6% odd comparable sales internationally versus that slower U.S. growth. It used to be that McDonald's uh, depended more on North America for expansion of revenue and margins. And that equation has slowly flipped. And under Easterbrook, who 
really honed his chops in the UK. I see that continuing. Uh, I've always been interested in this stock. I think there are more um, guilty pleasure seekers, as you mentioned, than folks realize. And I, I do think that the company has an end to the, the newer generation. Their app has been pretty successful. Uh, I know anecdotally, and don't just take this with a, a grain of salt, maybe as much salt as you might find in a Big Mac, listeners. <laughs> but anecdotally, my teen sons use that um, app, and we have always uh, succumbed to guilty pleasure. So I, I love McDonald's coffee. I can't say that we eat there all the time. But I do think they've got an into the millennial mindset, especially with de- the delivery. Here's something that will interest readers. First of all, this company isn't found in the Staples Fund, but it's found in its sister fund, which is the Consumer Discretionary Select Spider Fund, and that ticker is XLY. It's supposedly a discretionary stock, but I want to make an argument here with this stock and one other stock that's coming up that we're going to talk about. In times of declining income, uh, a stock like McDonald's is a staple stock because when you drop down from eating um, at a, from a fancier restaurant to a fast casual or quick service restaurant, of course, McDonald's will benefit. And so I always think of it as a staple uh, more than a discretionary stock. The wealth effect is very interesting to think about in relation to McDonald's too. Vince brought up his uh, college economics class. So one from mine, this concept of when the stock market declines, consumers feel less rich and they tend to pull back their spending, which can then have a reinforcing effect on the economy, especially a consumption-based economy like we have here in the US. So I think McDonald's can actually benefit if the stock market goes down or if the economy really does start to indeed slow. Either way, it will see some tailwinds. Last thing I want to say about this company, if you went back to the 1st of January 2008 and looked at the company's total return since then, listeners, I'll pause again. What do you think it would average in in the last several years, almost 11 years now? McDonald's has returned 31% per year on an annualized total return basis since the Great Recession. I kid you not. Yeah, that is an unbelievable number. When you mentioned that to me uh, before the show, I was just blown away because that is, you know, that's what the kind of number that you expect, not from McDonald's, but maybe some of these high-flying tech companies. But the next one that we'll look at is TJX Company. So this is another business model that I think, um, like you mentioned, with the wealth effect and in general can thrive in weaker economic environments and markets, thanks to um, the focus that it has on kind of quality at a discount. Um, the company reported 6% comps growth in its fiscal second quarter. Um, year-to-date top-line growth is in the double digits at 11%. And all of this is for a company with over 4,000 stores and management season end goal of about 6,100 locations. So this is not a small chain, um, a big multi-billion dollar business still managing to put up those kinds of numbers. And as a brick and mortar focused retailer, their e-commerce business is still very young and um, only starting to get its legs, still a very small part of the company. What else has stood out to you, Asin? TJX Companies, to me, is a twofer. It's a twofer one buy. You get the defensive uh, place to rest your money, but you also get in acquiring this stock uh, a growth narrative. And we've talked 
about TJX off and on on the show. I can't remember us really devoting an episode to it. But one of the things that I really love about this company is that it has a inordinately um, acute grasp of inventory. It's got buying teams dispersed all around the world, and they just specialize in buying discontinued inventory, discounted inventory, inventory from other retailers. Um, they put it on the shelves. Fashionistas love to come in and see what's new every week. And it's just a very lucrative model uh, that has served TJX companies well. What's caught my eye recently, I wrote an article a couple months back about how TJX utilizes its square footage. And I noticed that the new square footage growth is actually going not into its core fashion stores like Marshalls and TJ Maxx, but more towards this new line of business uh, personified by the home goods store. So the company has made a move into the home furnishings industry. It's taking its inventory chops and applying that uh, with some pretty nice merchandise. And those stores are doing quite well. I see this, again, it's in the discretionary uh, version of the uh, ETF that we've talked about. But to me, it's a staple stock when the economy goes by because those who are buying clothes um, that are top of the line start going more to TJX to see what's there on the shelves, maybe at a discount. The same with home furnishings. Uh, And we saw in the recession that stores like Home Depot, which offered folks a way to uh, spend on their homes without buying a new house that is renovating or uh, putting in new furnishings. This is the type of line of business that would benefit TJX if the economy indeed does go south. So I like it for all those levels. Stock is up 42% this year, and that's because you have this too for investors acknowledge and recognize that it's a safe place to put money, but it's also a growth story. Um, what are your thoughts on TJX? This is uh, you're right. I'm not sure if we've had a uh, a single episode kind of dedicated to TJX before, but it's come up. I feel like a few times, and in one episode at least, as kind of a best in class retailer. Um, uh, maybe a special shout out for the kind of brick and mortar focused category um, that we really like here. Um, I know a lot of fools are a fan of. Um, how TGX ha- is very flexible with the layout of its stores, um, what those store formats look like, and ultimately having a uh, very s- uh, strong management of its inventory, keeping people coming into the store, showing really strong um, comps growth, and specifically uh, maintaining strong traffic levels. Um, so keeping customers basically coming back to the store again and again. So um, definitely uh, another one to keep an eye on, but we have a few more minutes. I want to make sure we have time to cover Walmart. So I feel like this is kind of a gold standard as well for a consumer staples retailer. So going back to 2008, um, that year, that I mentioned in the lead up to the financial crisis, lows reached dur- the lows reached during that time, you know, the S&P, like I said, down 40% the year. Walmart was actually up 18% that year. Um, so just a single data point for you to consider. But more recently, um, this is a story that I think shares a lot of similarities with McDonald's because, um, Management's focused on growing its e-commerce arm. Um, They're focused on investing and acquiring all these new businesses and taking generally more market share. And it's a long-term focus uh, that I like to see, even if it means that there's going to be a near-term hit to profitability uh, in the next fiscal year or two. And And it's a focus that seems like management at both these companies, McDonald's and Walmart, are taking on, I think, will be good for shareholders um, looking out five, ten years and further. Uh, What are your thoughts here? So, long-time listeners 
will remember that we devoted an episode to Flipkart, which was Walmart's great e-commerce acquisition. Uh, that's the up-and-coming e-commerce online operation in India. One thing that's really caught my eye, though, since that show is Walmart's attention to, again, millennials uh, and Gen Zers. It's invested in a number of brands. I'll read a few. Bonobos, ModCloth, Moosejaw, and Shoebuy. These are non-traditional categories for Walmart. So it's investing where millennials are shopping and in the brands that millennials like. And it's also uh, really ramped up its own private label offerings. So fashion, again, uh, turns out to be a large opportunity in the economy in a good year or a bad year. And Walmart, in doing this, is extending beyond that brick and mortar, away from what Jet.com, another acquisition, brings it, which is sort of a quasi-competitor to Amazon, and more of an individualized, uh, standalone concept with each of these brands that it acquires. So it's diversifying that base out. Of course, when you're revenues are in the several hundreds of billions of dollars a year. It takes a long time for an effort like this to provide diversification. But we've seen it acquire delivery companies, logistics companies, sort of waging this multi-front battle with Amazon. And I would urge listeners to look beyond Amazon you know, to a future where those retail stores still exist, consumers are still going into Walmart stores, but also buying products which you today might not associate with this company. Uh, also wanted to note, uh, in the most recent quarter, Walmart's U.S. comps rose 4.5%, which was the best performance in 10 years. I believe they are reporting results uh, on the 15th of October in just a few days, so we'll get to see if that trend continues. It's a long-term classic defensive play, but again, there's a growth story in here that's starting to emerge. All right. Thanks, Asit. Um, we have a, like two more minutes, so I want to give you an opportunity uh, with this broad conversation that we've had on the concept or the idea of consumer staples um, as defense in during market downturns, what do you want, what's the big takeaway you want to leave our listeners with? The, the biggest takeaway, we really haven't mentioned this, but it's probably a question that many listeners have as we pull to the end of the show. If I buy these stocks tomorrow, am I just going to suffer another big downturn as I have with, with other names in my portfolio? My answer is we might. You never know how low the market can do, can go uh, when there is a bear market. However, each of these companies is grouped around 21 times forward earnings, and that's fairly cheap given today's market. The only outlier is McDonald's, which is trading at 24 times one-year forward earnings. So even with, uh, take TJX, it's 42% rise. It's still comparatively cheap when you look at the broader market. So you have some true defensive muscle in here. Uh, I would urge listeners to explore these and other big quality stocks in more detail that are staples and maybe start nibbling, adding some defense, defensive positions to their portfolios. Yep, and reiterating uh, some of the, uh, the warnings that we had, the takeaways that we had when we talked about this, um, what's driving the recent volatility, um, and this was two weeks ago in the show two weeks ago. Um, again, panicking, not some, not the right move. Um, you know, selling out of everything, not the right move. Um, they're in a position right now to think about your portfolio, and if you're worried about something like this, like a downturn, to consider 
you know, am I diversified? And if I'm not, these are the kinds uh, of sectors and companies that you can look at to help bolster things. Um, and that's just one of many routes, uh, hopefully, that you can take. And so, Asit, as always, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. As always, this was a load of fun. See you guys soon. Fools, thanks for tuning in. People in the program may own companies discussed in the show, and the Molly Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based only on what you hear during the program. Hold on.